It's my pleasure to be here with you this morning. I'm going to ask that you open up to the book of John. Book of John, chapter 1, starting in verse 19. As church, we've been walking through the book of John for the last four weeks, and as we start off our sermon this morning, I feel like I have to say this. We are at the point in the book of John where I can't re-preach the last few sermons at the beginning of this sermon. So um, if you guys weren't able to be here, I encourage you to go back and listen to um, the previous week's three sermons. They're on our church's website at graceforme.com. But just a, a handful of things that we saw in the, the weeks leading up to this. The book of John is a biography of the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus of Nazareth has a biography that is written about him, and uh, the book of John has told us that he was in the beginning with God, that uh, before all time began, that he was pre-existent and preeminent, and the book of John calls us to believe. It was written so that you might believe. Uh, the book of John was... Um, is written leading up to the moment where God reveals His glory. And as we talked about last week, um, God reveals His glory on the cross. And so the book of John is taking all this into account, um, and it's telling the story of Jesus of Nazareth. And the first 18 verses are what is sometimes called the prologue to the book of John, the, the introduction or the preface. And so the, the first 18 verses of the book of John are really kind of introducing us to the book overall. But today, in this passage, uh, we really start the story of the book of John. This passage, verse 19 through 34, really unpack for us the story of the narrative of Christ, and they begin the ministry of Jesus, which of course culminates on Golgotha. So if you don't mind looking with me as we uh, start our time together in John chapter 1, verse 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Father, one more time as we open up your word, would you make it clear? Would you make it plain and evident to us? Would you help us to apply it to our lives? Father, would you help us to, help us to use it to transform um, everything about us? 
Father, we trust that you are the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so, Father, would you show us that in all of its splendor and all of its glory this morning. So in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. There's probably no more important question before you this morning than to answer this. Who do you say that Jesus is? There's probably no more important question in your life that you will ever wrestle with than this question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Uh, One of my favorite historians, a man named Tom Holland, who has a great podcast called The Rest is History. Um, It's a great podcast. I love it. Anyways, he he did a a series of episodes on Jesus, and he's not a practicing Christian, but he said, you know, there's no more important person in history. Historically, there's no more person that's more influential than Jesus. He's told the best stories ever told, that his teachings have come down through the ages, that there's just nobody who's more important than Jesus. And And um, if that's who you think Jesus is, you will leave this building today thinking one thing. If you think he's a historically significant figure who did a lot of really influential, cool things and said a lot of cool things and told great stories, you will leave this building today thinking one thing and living your life one way. But if you leave here this morning confessing that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world then you will leave this building believing something totally different and living in a totally different way. And I will tell you that these, who Jesus is, this fork in the road that we all come to, that we all must pick a lane, we all must make a decision, uh, is a life-changing question for us. When we ask and try to answer who is Jesus, we cannot leave that question untransformed. It will either deform us or it will transform us. And as we're going to talk about today, this passage um, tells us quite a bit about who Jesus is, about what he's done for us, what he is doing for us, and his significance and his importance in the life of a Christian. So to talk about that, we're going to talk about who is John, uh, maybe a little bit counterintuitive, but the gospel kind of puts these two together. Who's John? Who is John? And who is Christ? Because who John is helps us understand who Christ is. So who is John and who is Christ? I, I love the way that this story starts out. It says this is the testimony of John. Now, when we come to the testimony of John, we've said this in previous weeks, but we have to understand there are two Johns in the book of John. Okay, So the one John was a disciple of the other John. The one John who wrote the gospel according to John, who wrote the book of John, the biography of Jesus that we're working our way through as a church, he was a disciple or a pupil or a follower of this John who's referred to here, and this John is John the Baptist, or sometimes called John the Baptizer. And so there, John knew John, and the other John also knew John, and yet they're not the same person. It's important to keep that separate. The whole gospel is the testimony of this John, but this section right here is the testimony of this John. Okay, so if you're not thoroughly confused, I did my best. All right, so there's two Johns. Uh, So when we say, who is John, we're asking the question, who is John the Baptist? Who is John the Baptist? Uh, John the Baptist was a preacher, religious leader, um, who did baptisms in the River Jordan uh, in the same time as Christ. 
And he was, uh, the other gospels tell us that he was influential and that he was significant. People came from all over the region, from up north, from down south, from east and from west, to be baptized by John in the river. Not only Jews, but also Gentiles. Not only the, the Jewish elite, but Roman soldiers. Everyone came to be baptized by John. And so because John, again, John the Baptist, was so influential, the elite in the city of Jerusalem wanted to figure out who is this guy? Who is this John? Again, John the Baptist, not John the Gospel writer. So who is John? So they come to him and they ask, who are you? He confessed, did not deny, but confessed. Notice how emphatic that is right there, that that statement. It's saying it three different times in different ways to try to emphasize this. He says, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Now, if you know your Old Testament, you know Elijah went into heaven on chariots of fire and never came back. And so they think, well, maybe he's Elijah, just come back from heaven. He says, no, I'm not. They say, are you the prophet? Are you the one who's going to come and bring us the new revelation of God? And he answered, no. And they said to him, so who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. I want you to look at that word sent in verse 22. Put, it, put a sticky note next to it or file it, underline it, circle it. It's important for the book of John. We're not going to talk about it the rest of the day. Just know that, this idea of being sent, it's, it's important. All right, what do you say about yourself? He said, I, and here he begins to cite the prophet Isaiah. Prophet Isaiah is the second most quoted book in the book of John. So, he, so they said to him, who are you? We, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah has said. Now he quotes there Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verse 3. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Oftentimes when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, and you got to understand this because the, the New Testament writers all quote the Old Testament. They all read their Bibles. They all know what the Bible says. Oftentimes when the New Testament writers quote one passage from the Old Testament, they want us not to just think about that one verse, but to kind of think about the whole section. So they thought about the whole sections together. So when they quote the Old Testament, they would often quote just little snippets, and they would think that those snippets were, uh, they, they would want us to read the whole book in conversation. So when he quotes Isaiah 40, verse 3, he wants us to think of the whole context around Isaiah 40, verse 3. So we already read this this morning for our call to worship, but let me just read some of these verses from Isaiah 40, 3 through 5. A voice, and this is in your bulletin, the voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So John says, I'm the voice that's crying out in the wilderness, making straight a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Now look at verse 5. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So John, when they ask him, who are you? He says, I'm a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight a way for the Lord, specifically for the glory of the Lord to be revealed. So John sees himself as the voice that is preparing the way, not just for God to come, but for the glory of God to come. And he goes on to elaborate, because if he's not the Christ, if he's not the prophet, if he's not Elijah come down, then why is he baptizing? 
It says in verse 24, Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John is baptizing. So John says, I'm baptizing to look forward. I'm baptizing in the promise that the glory of the Lord will one day be revealed. That my baptism, the baptism that I'm performing, is baptized to receive the promise of the revelation of the glory of God. It's a forward-looking baptism. And this glory of the Lord will be incarnate in one who John believes is both preexistent and preeminent. So he both comes before John because he was from the beginning, and the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this, he's also preeminent. He's also the Lord. He also is king overall. And John believes that the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed in this one. And his job, his mission, his purpose is to prepare the way for the glory of the Lord. That John knows this is coming. He believes the scriptures. He believes that what God has spoken is true and will certainly come to pass. And because he believes it is true, he has given his whole life, all of his ambitions, all of his purpose, all of his prestige to preparing the way for the Lord. And again, it's worth noting here that humility of John the Baptist that again and again and again as John's character shows up in Scripture, we see that he is a humble man. One who exalts not himself, one who says, one who says I must decrease and he must increase. The Gospel of John tells us that, gives us a picture of John the Baptist, where John is a humble man, a leader who seeks to exalt the one who comes after him. That's who John is. John is the voice crying out in the wilderness, preparing the way for the glory of the Lord to be revealed. Well, if that's who John is, who is Jesus? Because who John is helps us understand Jesus. So who is Jesus? Well, we see this in verses 29 through 34. It says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. Now, just it's worth dwelling on this and thinking about this a second. We, we talked a little bit about this last week, how the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Okay, What John does not say is the next day he saw a beam of light coming towards him. He doesn't say that he saw a hologram of, he doesn't say he saw a, 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 he says, no, I saw Jesus, the man, Jesus of Nazareth, who was born of a virgin. I saw him, a human being, a flesh and blood human being. He had a zip code. He, he lived and breathed as a human. He saw him, he saw that human coming towards him. And said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and John goes on this tangent and this exploration of who Jesus is. Now, to understand who John tells us that John says is the uh, Jesus is, you kind of have to understand this, um, this event in the life of Christ. It's the baptism of Jesus. And this part, in, in this gospel, the gospel of John, kind of refers to the baptism of Jesus, but it doesn't give us all the detail of the other gospel accounts. It's kind of assuming we already know the story. So just in case you don't know the story, um, it's given for us in the book of Matthew chapter 3, and the book of Matthew chapter 3, and I'll just read this out here. Matthew 3 verses 13 through 17 tells us this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. 
John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So Jesus comes to John the Baptist so that he could be baptized by John. And then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So John the Baptist baptizes Jesus, and when Jesus comes out of the water, a dove comes down, the Spirit comes down like a dove, and rests on Jesus, and you hear this statement from the Father, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And John is going to tell us that in this event lies the key to understanding the identity of Christ. That in the baptism of Jesus, that's the key to understanding the, the identity of Christ. And simply, for John, it shows us that he is the Son of God. That he is the Son of God. That's very clear in verse 34. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. Which means that in God, the Godhead, there is a Father and there's a Son. That they exist together from before all time. But not only is there a father and a son, but also a spirit. The spirit comes down like a dove, and it comes down and it rests on Jesus. And and in the baptism of Christ, we get this, just this glimpse, just this glimmer, just this picture of what the Godhead has been experiencing from before time began. So in the baptism of Christ, we get a picture of the triune relationships of God. That the Father is sending the Son, or Spirit to the Son, and the Son is receiving the gifts of the Father from before time began. That they live in perfect communion and perfect harmony. And at the baptism of Christ, we see the triune God. Just give us a glimpse, a glimmer of what it was like to, to exist with God before all time began. This, is, this is, has kind of captured the Gospel of John's imagination that Jesus is the Son of God and the Father has opened up the heavens and sent the Spirit down and it has descended and it's remained on the Son. Now, in and of itself, that is amazing that John gets this glimpse, this glimmer into the triune relationship of God that exists before time began. And yet John says there's more to the story than just that. Because John says, I didn't really connect the dots. I was kind of, you know, following along. I wasn't really, I, I didn't really understand. And, and it says that the Father actually points out to him the, the importance of this. In verse 33, he says, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, there's that word sent again, I'm not going to talk about it. He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So John says, I didn't really connect the dots that God himself was going to enter into flesh and come down, but God himself told me that the Son is the one on whom the Spirit descends and remains, that the the Son is the one who's going to accomplish the redemptive, saving work of Christ. Now, at this point, maybe we would be tempted to ask, why would Jesus bother to get baptized? After all, often when we are baptized, we're entering into the Christian faith, John is, uh, Jesus doesn't need to enter into the Christian faith. He is the Christian faith. When we get baptized, often we're receiving the promise of the Spirit, but Jesus has enjoyed the promise of the Spirit from before time began. Why does Jesus get baptized? Now, all four of the Gospels assume an answer to this. And, and that answer that they all, I think they all share in common is that Jesus is setting an example for Christians. 
So the beginning of the Christian life is, uh, starts with baptism, just like uh, the beginning of Jesus' ministry starts with baptism. And Jesus is setting an example for Christians, what Christians should do. Christians should get baptized. And yet, all four of the Gospels also give a little bit more of an angle on this. Now, they don't contradict. The, the Gospels complement one another. They don't contradict one another. And yet, they all give us a perspective. They all give us an angle. Why was it that Jesus got baptized? So you'll find one part of the answer in Matthew and in Mark and in Luke. And that's, they're all kind of giving us their angle, and they have purposes for doing that. So why does the Gospel of John tell us that Jesus gets baptized? It's so that he can fulfill the Scriptures. So that he can fulfill the Scriptures. We have this very clear statement from the book of Isaiah, chapter 11. Again, Isaiah is the most, second most quoted book in the Gospel of John, Isaiah chapter 11. And you see this often cited in reference to um, Christmas and the time of Christmas. Because 11.1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. But verse 2, verse 2 is so important. Isaiah 11.2 says this, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest, shall remain upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The spirit is coming down from heaven and resting upon him. And John gets baptized, or Jesus gets baptized, sorry, to fulfill that scripture, that the spirit would come down and rest and remain upon him. That's why Jesus gets baptized. And the Father connects this to not only the, the, the fact that he is the Son of God, but the Father helps John the Baptist to see, which is then recorded for us in the Gospel of John, uh, that this one on whom the Spirit rests upon, this fulfillment of Scripture, is the one who will accomplish this, uh, the salvation of the people of God, is the one who will establish the new covenant. That's what this is referring to. So if you look and see at the end of verse 33... This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, I, I would guess probably in this room, if we were, everyone had a chance to kind of say their piece, um, th- there would probably be a number of us who maybe are open to um, the charismatic gifts. And um, that's not something at this church that we choose to divide over. I think there's probably a spectrum of belief on this place. Uh, in this place, and it's something that we can see past, and we can love one another, even though we might disagree or, or understand Scripture differently on this point. So I, I'm not intending to declare an overall point other than just to say this particular thing at the end of verse 33. When it says, He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, that's not in reference to the charismatic gifts. So even if you are open to the charismatic gifts, or we're not having that conversation, we're just trying to understand this scripture on its own terms. And this scripture on its own terms, verse 33, is not referring to the charismatic gifts. It's referring to the establishment of the new covenant. We've already seen that John, the gospel writer, is looking back to the Old Testament to to try to understand the work of Christ. And we've seen that every single week that again and again, there's all these layers in the Old Testament. And the establishment of the new covenant, the establishment of the new covenant brings with it the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
So in Ezekiel 37, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, where, where there's this vision that the prophet Ezekiel has. And I love Ezekiel because it just seems like not all the dots connect for him. It just seems like he's not quite there. But in Ezekiel 37, he sees this vision of the valley of dry bones. And God tells him to go out and prophesy to the valley of dry bones. And the dry bones kind of clack and clatter and they all come together. And you can hear them shaking. And then skin wraps around the valley of dry bones. And Isaiah prophesies. And they all come to life. And right attached to Ezekiel 37 is Ezekiel 36, which makes sense. And in Ezekiel 36, we're promised the gift of the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit's going to come, and the Holy Spirit's going to come, and the Holy Spirit is going to uh, uh, come with the establishment of the new covenant. So, for example, this is just one sample from Ezekiel 36, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will put, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And so when John here is referring to the gift of the Holy Spirit, this is what he's talking about, that God is going to establish a new covenant. And when this new covenant is established, the Spirit's going to come. He's going to put a new heart in us, which makes all the sense in the world in light of what we saw in verse uh, 12 through 13, where it says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is talking about the Spirit as the gift of the new covenant, that the Spirit is going to come. And specifically what the Spirit is going to do is He's going to put the law in our hearts so that we can walk according to the ways of Scripture. And John the Baptist gets this understanding that Jesus is the one on whom the Spirit rests, and therefore He can give the gift of the Holy Spirit. And John the Baptist sees that that God himself has entered into human flesh and the Spirit is resting upon him and because the Spirit rests upon him, he can give the gift to the Holy Spirit. It's worth saying at this point that the baptism of John the Baptist looked forward to this day. It looked forward to the establishment of the new covenant. It looked forward to the gift of the Holy Spirit who would help the people of God to walk according to the ways of God. And the baptism of Christians looks back to this event. When Christians get baptized today, we are not looking forward to something in the future, but we're looking back to what was accomplished on Mount Calvary. We're looking back to the new covenant being established. We're looking back to the promise of the Spirit that was given through Christ. When John baptized, he was looking forward. When we're baptized, we're looking back and we're receiving the promises of God. We're receiving the promises that God really has sent the Spirit and really has put a a new, a new heart within us. For John, and, and just to plug, if, if you would like to get baptized, maybe you say you've never been baptized, we are going to be having a baptism service here. Um, we're thinking February 12th. And so if you want to be part of that baptism, if you've never been baptized, come on down. We've got plenty of water. This is Maine. We'll be fine. All right. Um, now for John, this promise that God is going to give the Spirit through the establishment of the new covenant, that John is going to, Jesus is going to establish a new covenant and give the Spirit, also means something else. It also means that God is going to have to make a way for the people to be forgiven. 
whenever the new covenant is talked about in the Old Testament, whether it's Jeremiah 31, whether it's Ezekiel 36 and 37, whether it's in Deuteronomy, there's this sense that the forgiveness of sins is necessary. And so if John is going to, if Jesus is going to make the new covenant, if he's going to establish the, the covenant on which the Holy Spirit comes and, and dwells within the people of God, in which they can walk according to the ways of God, if Jesus is going to do that, if Jesus is really going to, then he's got to make a way for the sins to be taken care of, for the sin of the people to be atoned, for their wickedness and their unrighteousness to be dealt with. God has to make a way to be forgiven. And John believes, John believes that if we're going to establish a new covenant, that means we're going to need a new sacrifice. And if we're going to establish a final covenant, that means that we're going to establish, that we're going to need a final sacrifice. Which means, not only is Jesus the one who gives the Spirit, not only is Jesus God's Son, Jesus is our Lamb. Who is Jesus? He's God's son, but he's also our lamb. Which is why he starts off the most emphatic verse in this whole section. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That Jesus is the lamb of God. That's the most emphatic thing that he says in this whole section. Who takes away the sin of the world. Now, Again, I just have to stress this. John the Baptist and all the authors of the New Testament, they knew their Old Testament. And so the minute that John the Baptist cites uh, that there is a Lamb of God, immediately a whole host of associations and images and scriptures in the Old Testament would have flooded to their mind. And so the first one might be this, the, what we read in our scripture reading earlier in Genesis 22. I love Genesis 22. You see this picture where God has made all these promises to Abraham throughout all of Abraham's life. He said, I'm going to give you all these blessings. I'm going to give you all these blessings of the covenant. I'm going to shower upon you the blessings of the covenant. And yet Abraham just kept screwing the covenant up again and again and again. Abraham kept breaking the covenant. And if you know your covenant, you know that that means that somebody's got to pay that debt. Somebody's got to be the sa- Somebody's got to bear the curse. And so we get to the end of, Gen- of Abraham's life in Genesis 22. And Abraham finally has his son, the son that God has promised him throughout all these years. And God says, I want you to go sacrifice him. Abraham knew exactly what that meant. That meant that Isaac was going to bear his curse for him. Abraham knew exactly what that meant. And so Abraham says, okay, he probably left before Sarah got up and said, Isaac, come on, why don't, you, don't tell your mom what's going on. And they go up the mountain and they get up to the top of the mountain and Abraham is about to slay Isaac for his own sin. God says, Abraham, wait. We often think, oh, he couldn't do that because Isaac was too innocent. No, he couldn't do that because Isaac was an insufficient sacrifice. Because Isaac, if you keep reading the book of Genesis, has his own issues. Isaac is not, Isaac couldn't bear the sins of Abraham. And God says, uh, scripture says, God will provide a lamb. That God will provide. Throughout all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, there's this understanding that even the sacrifices that people of God brought from among the first fruit of their flock, that God had provided that. That deeply ingrained within the sacrificial system of the Old Testament is this idea that God will provide atonement. God will provide the sacrifice. 
God will provide a means for forgiveness. And so we see that again in the Passover event, where the people of God, they're, they're in prison and they're, they're in, they're, um, they, are, they are enslaved to the Egyptians and God has been sending these plagues and Pharaoh's been saying, I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to let the people of Israel go. And, and God says, fine, I'll send one last plague. And he tells the people of Israel, not that they're going to escape because they're perfectly righteous. No, he says, if you want to escape this plague where some, an angel of death is going to come and he's going to kill the firstborn son out of every house for your sins, notice the theme of sons for sin, that you have to take a lamb. You've got to take that lamb. You've got to put its blood over your doorpost. And when the angel of death passes through the land of Egypt, he'll look at the doorpost and he'll see the blood that is covered. And he'll pass over that house. And every house that had a lamb slain for it was spared. And every house that didn't wasn't. So when Jesus says the lamb of God, not only is he thinking of Isaac, but he's also thinking of Passover. He might also be, and I think he is referencing in part, Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, where, where, where there would be sacrifices that were made for the sins of all the people of Israel. We see in Yom Kippur, Three sacrifices that are being made. On the one hand, there was a sacrifice that was made to purify the priest who was offering the sacrifice because that priest himself was screwed up. And, and so that first sacrifice was made for that, for that priest. There was a second sacrifice made called a scapegoat. And what would happen is the priest would take that goat and he would, he would list out over it a curse and put all the sins of the people of Israel onto that scapegoat and they would take it out into the wilderness and they would send the sins out into the wilderness. And there was a third sacrifice, a third goat who would be himself slain and, and the priest would take the blood from the sacrifice and they would bear it into the Holy of Holies, which only went in once a year. And he would sprinkle the blood on the altar three times. That this, this idea of sacrifice and there's a lamb of God can't be referenced without thinking back to this elaborate atonement rituals in the Old Testament. And finally, we might also point to Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, the, the great story of the great story of the um, the suffering servant, and we see this verse where it refers to the sufferings of the of the coming Messiah as a lamb. It says in Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. When John the Baptist says, there goes the lamb of God. He was not ignorant of the Old Testament. He wasn't ignorant that people would try to draw these connections because there's obvious connections. He intended it. He intended that we would see that God really has provided the better Isaac, that God really has provided the better uh, uh, Passover lamb whose blood is over our doorpost. 
That God really has provided the better scapegoat who takes our sins away into the wilderness. That God really has provided the better sacrifice whose blood can be brought into the throne room of God, as Hebrews tells us. That God really has provided a better suffering servant, the Lamb of God who is crushed for our iniquities. That God sent his Son to be our sacrifice. He is God's Son and our Lamb. In when John the Baptist says, I'm making straight the way of the Lord and the glory of God's going to be revealed to the people of Israel. This is what he's talking about. That the sacrifice, the final sacrifice, the sufficient sacrifice is going to be made for the people of God. And that's the only way that the new covenant will be established. Who is Jesus? Is he somebody who has historical significance? Undeniably. Is he a great teacher? Sure. But most importantly, he is God's son and our lamb. As the, probably the most famous verse in the whole Bible tells us, for God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that whosoever should believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. God sent his son to be our lamb. So as we apply this scripture, it's worth asking yourself, is he my lamb? Is he my lamb? Is his sin over my doorpost so that I can escape the angel of death? Did did God provide him for my sins? Have I really put my sins upon him that he would take them away from me as far as the east is from the west? Is he my lamb? Maybe if you're here today and you say he's not. You say, how can he be my lamb? Well, I would say if he's going to be the lamb of God that takes away your sins, that means you have to admit that you have sins. It means you need to stop pretending that there's nothing wrong. Otherwise, you wouldn't need a sacrifice. And guess what? You're in good company. Because whether you know it or not, you are in a room full of sinners. And all of us need a lamb that can take away our sins. And thankfully, God has provided that. If you want him to be your lamb, I think it means that first you have to recognize that he is, uh, that he's taking away your sins, that you are a sinner. I think that also means that you need to receive him. We talked about that last, uh, the, in the last couple of weeks, that to really believe in Christ is to grab hold of him, to receive him, to look at him and see him and understand and acknowledge him. So to ask him, Jesus, I want all of you, take all of me. Take all my sin, take all my guilt, take all my shame, and give me all of your salvation. All that you've done, all that you can do. That's what it means to have him as your lamb. Ask yourself, is he my lamb? And I believe, secondly, that means we need to tell ourselves he is my lamb. Because this is not one thing that we come to once a year. That he is the sacrifice that takes away our sins. We need to remind ourselves of again and again. That we need to come back to this again and again as we're reading through the, the Bible. We need to see this glory afresh every day. When guilt assails us, when shame seems like it's about to wipe us into the sea, we need to remember we have a lamb. When you're feeling gloom come down upon you and you feel that there's a blanket of despair and you feel that there's no one who could ever love you because of all the things that you've done, you need to know there is a lamb. 
Tell yourself, he is my lamb. Preach the gospel to yourself. Put the, put the blood over your doorpost and look at it and stare at it and remember that your sins have been taken out of the camp. And your sins have been put on his forehead and the blood that he has spared, uh, shed for you is brought into the throne room of God and God has beheld it. And because of Christ, God is pleased with you once for all. Tell yourself, he is my lamb. I believe this also means, I believe this also means that we need to recognize that true and genuine life change can only come through Christ and the Holy Spirit. Because only the Holy Spirit can come and write it on our law and knit us into Christ and unite us with him. We need to, we need to recognize that true and genuine life change, change can only come through the Holy Spirit. Listen, I don't have too much of a problem if you read some self-help books. I mean, they're not that helpful, but if you like them, more power to you. But they might be able to change some outside behavior, but they can't change your heart. Only the Spirit can change your heart. And the more that we resist that, the more that we look outside and we try to find other ways to change ourselves and we, don't, we, 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 we ignore the means of grace in our lives, the more frustrated, the more guilty, the more despairing that we'll be because we're trying to use tools that weren't meant to fix us to fix us. Only the Holy Spirit can change us. You say, well, how does he do that? Well, he does that through the ordinary means of grace, through one degree from another, fixing our eyes closer and closer to Christ, helping us as we're examining the scriptures to behold the glory of Christ and opening our hearts up to all that God has done for us, aligning our loves. The, the way that I think about it is this. Some of you know this to be true or you've, you've said this and it is true. I'm a bit of a coffee snob. Roast, I roast my own coffee, although I'm not as good as some of you who roast your own coffee. But anyways... And I didn't start out that way. It's not like I was a you know, five-year-old and I thought, I know what I want to do with the rest of my life. I want to be addicted to this substance that, anyways. No, here's how I got started drinking coffee, all right? I go to church and I get one of those styrofoam cups. You guys know this? Oh, they're awful. But that's okay because that coffee wasn't that good. It wasn't really coffee. And they'd pour it in there and be like instant and just Folgers and gross. I'm sorry. I know I just insulted like half of you, but I'm not actually that sorry. And... and the more that I, and when I first got that cup of coffee, I poured into all kinds of creamer and all kinds of sugar that there was kind of just coffee flavored creamer at that point, And I drink it. And by God's grace, as I became more of an adult, I left childish things behind me and I started drinking the good stuff. And eventually even that wasn't good enough for me. And I, I had to get it fresher. Sanctification works similarly, not by making you into a snob, but by cultivating your tastes and aligning your loves for Christ. It doesn't happen all overnight. We wish it did, but it doesn't. It happens degree by degree, step by step, sight by sight. And only the Spirit can do that as He's gently and carefully and cautiously aligning us more and more into the image of Christ. I think that this means that we need to recognize that only the Spirit can bring genuine life change. All of this, I think, ought to humble us. All of this ought to humble us. That's a clear example that we see with John the Baptist, that he was a humble man. He was a man who had convictions. I think that's clear. He died for his convictions. It wasn't that he was a, it wasn't a pushover. He just, he was humble. He knew it was more about Jesus than it was about him. 
And so he was willing to give up his own followers. He's willing to give up his own fame. He's willing to give up his own show to make much of Christ. He's willing to be an extra in his story so that Christ could be the main character. He's willing to make much of Christ. That last illustration came from Luke Bildo. I told him I was going to try to remember that he said that. If you embrace this, that Jesus is the Lamb of God, it has the potential to change your relationships. I think we need to let it transform our relationships with others. I think in two ways. For starters, if we embrace this fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that means he doesn't just take away my sins. He also takes away other people's sins too. Which means it's hard to stay angry at someone that you know that God has forgiven. It's hard to be sure. You can, you can not be sure that they have repented of their sin, but it's hard to stay angry with them. It's hard to put somebody down who you think has been justified. It's, it's hard to build yourself up to push all of your successes forward and pull some, all of somebody else's failures forward and compare them when you know that you are a sinner, that you needed an atonement. In other words, as we've been forgiven, so we ought to be forgiving. It, when, when we believe that the Son of God was forsaken for us, it just it gets a lot easier to recognize that that could have happened towards others. That other people could be forgiven just like we are. And that other people could be atoned for just like we are. And that I'm not asking you to minimize their mistakes and their failures. I'm just trying to get you to see. You can't say Jesus is my Lamb of God and nobody else's. This has a chance to transform the way that we relate to our kids and our spouses and our co-workers because it's a lot harder to see them for all their failures when we recognize that they've been cleansed, they've been atoned for, they've been justified. It also means that if we recognize only the Holy Spirit can change us, that means that we recognize only the Holy Spirit can change others too, which means we should not look at other people like a project. We shouldn't look at other people like, I know what you need. Let me give you a to-do list. I know you can't do self-help, but you can do my help, and I'll just give you all these things that you can start to do. And once you do that, then you'll be a different person. If we really believe only the Holy Spirit can change somebody, then we're going to stop looking at other people like a project. There's like a list of things that need to change and need to happen. And we're going to continue not to point them to what we think they should be, but to continue to point them towards the gospel, to continue to point them towards Christ. And finally, I would say this. We need to have confidence that the way that God wins, the way that God wins is through a land that is standing as though he'd been slain. We need to have confidence that in spite of all the brokenness, all the shame, all the hurt of this world, that God has conquered, that God has removed our sins from us as far as the east is from the west, and that though the darkness has done its very best, the light still shines. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are indeed a good God. We thank you that you have provided an atonement, a sacrifice for us, one who's borne our sins into the wilderness. You've sent your own son to be the better Isaac. You've sent your own son to bear our sins. That You've sent your own son to secure for us the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And so, Father, right now I pray, maybe there's some who are here today, and maybe they've never received this lamb. They've never put his blood over their doorpost. God, would you give them the grace to do that even now, to grab hold of him and take him as their own? Father, would I pray for the rest of us, that when guilt and doubt assail us, that we would preach the gospel to ourselves again and again, that he is our lamb. And that he is the lamb that conquers, the lamb that is standing as though he'd been slain. It's in the name of your glorious son that we pray. Amen.